I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. So I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Uh, I think we have a very interesting guest today, as well as a very timely topic to talk about. And it's going to be along the lines of how you identify patients. And I'll tell you a little story from my past. Um, I practiced in a town with had, which had two very, very large multi-specialty group practices. Uh, my practice was about 125 members. Um, the practice down the street was about 283 members. So it was very, very large. And one of the marketing things that we found that worked for our little small clinic compared to our big behemoth was they always, when you called them, said something very interesting. They didn't say, hello, who are you or anything? What's your clinic number? Tell me your clinic number. We can't do anything in our system without your clinic number. So if I identified myself as Jay or Bob or, you know, the name wasn't acceptable. You had to have that clinic number. On our side of the fence, we would always ask their name and double check it when they came in. So it was a little more personal. And what we found is we actually had a lot of patients switch clinics simply because they asked for that number as opposed to ask for their name. So I found that very interesting given the topic today, which is going to be centered a little bit around, well, in addition to this, but the major topic is a universal patient identifier and how that can actually help healthcare here. Um, Our guest today is Mari Sabakis. She has been working in the public arena for a very long time, including stints at the AMA, the CMS, the Office of the National Coordinator. Her passion is a longtime advocate for leveraging technology smartly, which I like smartly. Uh, She champions policies that improve the clinical experience for providers and patients alike and promotes innovation and competition. She's currently the Vice President of Public Policy with the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, CHIME. Uh, She serves as the voice in Washington, D.C. for CIOs and Chief Security Officers and other C-suite executives uh, that are charged with the purchase and secure deployment of healthcare technology. Um, She oversees the advocacy and interaction with federal agencies at the White House and Congress on behalf of CHIME. Mari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Honors. So, like I mentioned, you have spent a lot of time in healthcare policy at multiple, multiple levels. Tell me a little bit about, and our listeners, about how you got involved with all of your initiatives and what what drew you to the position that you're in now? Yeah, sometimes I I ask myself that very question, Dr. Arnors. <laughs> I just last year here I'll tell a story. Because to know, you know, to know a lobbyist is to know that we have to tell stories for a living. So my daughter says to me, okay, well, we're having career day last spring. Yeah, I want you to come in and present. I was like, present about being a lobbyist? I was like, this will be hilarious. So I go in and I present to like the third graders and I was like, okay, listen, here's the deal. I was like, do you know that it's illegal to sell lemonade on, you know, on your front lawn? What? 
I was like, how many of you want to make some money that's not already all like all the hands get raised? How many of you have tried to sell lemonade? A few more hands go up. I was like, yeah, you're breaking the law. And so I go into basically how a law is made. And so you, you would have thought that I may have had some sort of lifelong ambition for this, but I'm, I guarantee you and your listeners that no child ever says when I wake up in the morning, you know what, gosh darn it, I'm going to be a lobbyist when I grow up. Said no one ever. So I kind of think I fell into this. I, I don't even think I was like paying attention to social studies. And then I get to college and uh, I was supposed to be an art, art major. And you know what, I was like, the art director was a jerk. And I was like, I'm going to take this other class. And I got an A in politics and government. And I just never turned back. And so here we are. <laughs> you said a very long time. I just was just say like many years later, she's still in public policy. Uh, love it. And I'm one of those weird people who devours federal regulation for a living. Total snooze fest, right? I mean, you, you do have to kind of break it up with like a few cups of coffee when you're reading federal, federal regulation. But I like it. And um, I enjoy it. And, you know, you asked about like, how did we really get here? And I'll just say that um back when I worked for CMS, uh, they were just starting to implement HIPAA. Okay, now I'm totally aging myself. I get that. But if we can all go back in our time machine, HIPAA, right? It was about portability, but it had a bunch of stuff in there. It was really the precursor to health ID. It was the administrative side of healthcare and rooted it in, in, in there are four identifiers. And I just remember taking all the phone calls from all the angry doctors. If I have to do this HIPAA stuff, I'm going to like quit my practice. I can't tell you how many calls I took like that at CMS. Many. Um, I got to punt though. I was like, oh no, privacy. Yeah, that that's not our jurisdiction. That's OCR. So I totally got to, you know, punt them over to a different phone line. But I, but I will say it goes back a long time. And then, you know, in 2000, I think it was four, um, President Bush comes in and he says he wants to do something on health IP. I raised my hand. I was like, I'll go volunteer at ONC, they have no funding, let me go Medicare. And they say, yeah, we'll lend you to ONC, this like newly concocted agency we really don't know much about. And it's been a year there and I absolutely loved it. So, you know, ONC really built upon the backbone, which I'm sure you're intimately familiar with as a billing executive. It, it built on that administrative stuff, which by the way, still isn't totally figured out. Ask any patient or doctor about prior authorization and they'll probably like wanna, you know, ring a few necks. So that's really how, you know, I don't know. I like it. I love it. I pretend like I'm a lawyer half the time. I'm not, but here I am. <laughs> well, I have later. to agree with one thing. One of my responsibilities in several different organizations have been reading new re federal regulations and it definitely takes a cup of coffee or two and some time to get through them the way they're written. And it's, but it's so important to have somebody to really read them because you don't ever understand them until you really, really read them. So interestingly, along those lines, uh, TEFCA has recently come about, and it appears that interoperability is actually going to occur in some shape or fashion. So in your experience going up Capitol Hill and talking to folks, uh, what can you tell us about the discussions of how that actually got going and how we kind of broke through? Because the way I see it is that until the federal government decided that we are going to have a policy and a set of rules, and here's what you can and can't do, that interoperability was never going to happen. Sharing of medical records, we're, we're going to be stuck in HIPAA land, meaning I can't do it. I can't share it. I'm going to go to jail if I do. That was kind of the way HIPAA 
scared a lot of providers, at least at my level. You didn't want to share anything unless you absolutely had to. So tell me a little bit about how that process went about or came about, if you can. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. I mean, and that is like you you just touched on something that's like this notion of, you know, don't overshare under HIPAA, which has been ingrained into the provider psyche, provider slash clinician psyche for the past several, you know, decades. And now we're pivoting to like, you must share, you must share everything. And they, they are and they are not diabolically opposed, but it's really hard to change that muscle memory because, I mean, as you and I both know, the doctor isn't sitting on the front at the front desk, right? It's somebody, a receptionist or someone, and you're you're saying, no, I need you to like show this. No, we can't do that because of HIPAA. You're, we're going to try to not educate all the clinicians in the country, but all of the frontline staff. I mean, it's a lot. So to answer your question, though, about how did we get here? <clears throat> okay, so we got HIPAA. Great. That's great. Um, and then we have, again, 2004, you know, we want to move towards um, EHRs, most hospitals and ambulatory settings did not have electronic health records. You know, Dr. Brailler comes in, um, you know, under uh, under leadership of President Bush, and he says, okay, we're going to change that. So then they get some funding, right, aka high tech. That was under, again, I'm going back and not, I call the policy time machine, everybody strap on. 2008, remember, it was a recession, not so good. And they were looking for shovel-ready projects. And, um, you know, included in that big uh, ARRA, and I'm trying to American Reinvestment Recovery Act, can't believe I remember that, but under that ARRA statute is HITECH. And HITECH had incentives for hospitals and doctors to purchase and deploy technology, of course, with strength attached, right? Um, in a lot of cases, downside risk if you didn't do it after a certain amount of time. And so that they, they went through that whole process, right? So, okay, so now most hospitals, most doctors, great EBHR, super awesome, amazing. And they're certified. So there's some base level of understanding about what they can do. But still, to your point, the data is siloed. Everyone's their own island, each, you know, island for itself. And it's brutal. And data sharing is still very nascent. Um, inter interoperability, that overused word, it's um, fledgling and you know, Congress is sitting here shaking their head and many others saying like, geez, we just dumped all this money in, but it's still not where it needs to be. So then along comes the effort around 21st century cures, which is an enormous piece of legislation that, again, includes many other things not related to health IT, but includes health IT, right? It has a piece in there. And here we are with the Cures Act. So if you haven't heard about your listeners are like, what is she talking about? And I think it was passed into law. Oh my gosh, Cassie might have to correct me here. 2016, maybe? Um, several years ago. Sounds right. Either way, yep. it's now, yeah, it sounds about right. Hopefully, no one's going to go spot check me on this. 2022, here we are. And the chickens have come home to roost. Okay. It's time to get going and implement stuff. And people are like, what the heck takes so long? Well, uh, get, let's go back to my analogy about selling lemonade. You, you have to go through a process, right? You have to go get a law passed. Then you have to punt over the law to the appropriate agency or agencies. And then they have to do rules. And first, before you finalize a rule, you got to ask for stakeholder input. Many years later, in plus inserted our time frame is a pandemic, which of course has slowed things down. But here we are. The next deadline is coming up. So that was that was sort of the like the, the timeline, but Congress realized just because you have a certified EHR does not mean that we have ubiquitous interoperability. So TEFCA trusted exchange framework and common agreement. I mean, that rolls off the tongue, right? I mean, 
go Google that too. If you don't know what Tufka is, just say Tufka. People know what you're talking about, at least here in DC. And so here we are back at, you know, we, have a, we have to start implementing these things. And, you know, you asked about Capitol Hill. There's only a, like a handful of staffers on Capitol Hill who have any idea what Tufka is. There's, there's key committees of jurisdiction who are deeply rooted in this, but even those committees of jurisdiction, they have staff that know this really well. I mean, and we know those people, but there's a Senate Health Committee and House Energy and Commerce, right? Those are two examples. When it comes to incentives, it's Senate Finance. So there's a very finite group of people, and you know, Cassie knows them all really well, um, who do this for a living. And so these are, the, these are the people, the architects of the statute that we now are in the process of executing today. And if you're a provider listening and you don't know what October 6th is, go Google that too. Otherwise, you can just email me at the end of the program and we'll, we'll have a, like, you know, a therapy session. So October 6th, right? This is when EHI, you're like, wait, you're giving me another acronym? Oh, my God, I can't think of. So HIPAA had its own lexicon. That's right. Get your dictionary out. We have a whole new lexicon for the information sharing. We got TESCA. We've got, you know, EHI. I mean, the list goes on and on. And we've got RE, you know, what is it? Um, RCE, not REC, not to be confused with REC. And here we are, Dr. Andres. What are we going to do? How are, you, exactly. how are you handling this? Are they ready? Is anyone ready? Uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, well, I call it uh, inter without operability. Um, we're, we've been sharing medical records for years, meaning they go in a big folder. Uh, they are faxed. They are transmitted in some shape or fashion to another location. The problem is it's a big pile of stuff going into another big pile of stuff. And we can yeah. talk for hours yeah. on that uh, to give, you know, some type of usability to all of a, what's being exchanged. But one of the very interesting things, and it's been absolutely one of my soapboxes for a long time. And I've been a reviewer for HEMS for five or six years now. And every year there are people presenting at hymns that talk about schemes to identify a person, to make sure that Jay Anders is Jay Anders, that they got the right guy. And if you Google my name, there's a lot of Jay Anders out there. And I didn't know that, uh, but there are. So how do you figure that out without some kind of unique thing going on. So here we have, at least in the hymns world, a bunch of very, very smart people using all kinds of fuzzy logic, you know, locations, past addresses, phone numbers, uh, how many children you have, you name it. I've seen every permutation of your life that you can imagine that would figure out who you are. When the answer might be fairly simple is having some unique number and it can't be your social security number because that's linked to who knows what now, especially your credit rating and other things. But there's been that kind of pushback on actually creating something that would allow my medical record with code 123 gets transmitted to another place with code 123 and they know it's me. So could you talk a little bit about that? And I read a couple of things where the cost of not having this is monstrous in the U.S. healthcare market. 
Hospitals spend a fortune doing it. Uh, the U.S. healthcare system as a whole, Medicare spends a fortune doing it. So can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in that regard on Capitol Hill and how that is expanding, contracting, pushback, people for it? Yeah, I would be happy to. <clears throat> you know, my dad's name is Eric Johnson. You know, he, he's been on flights before where they're like, even the, the same middle initial. I mean, he goes on a flight and maybe ends up in like the wrong place, like not the end of the world. You misidentify a patient and you're talking about life-threatening, if not deadly, outcomes potentially. You know, maybe it's, maybe there's some healthcare fraud too. Like, so there's, there's problems that are, that are greater than getting on the wrong flight. And yeah, so let's go back again in our time machine. So four, again, standards in HIPAA. You have the patient identifier, you have the provider identifier, which every clinician in America has a national patient or national provider identifier, AKA NPI. Then they had national payer. That one, like, I don't know, went to the wayside. I'm not sure they could ever iron that one out. <clears throat> Probably the least important of all the ones we're talking about. And then I think there was like the um, employer identifier, which is like EIN, I think. But the, but the patient one, okay? So um, Senator Rand Paul Sr. many years ago decided he didn't like this idea. He felt it was an infringement upon people's liberty and privacy. And so he took it upon himself to, uh, to say, no, we're not going to do this. And he was the real barrier in, uh, in Congress. And then his son, you know, the current uh, senator, took up the torch. And it's continued to say no. So what we have here is a real obstacle on the Senate side. And this continues to be a challenge for us. So we've gotten pretty far with the with the Democrats um, moving this ball forward on the House side and even, you know, potentially potentially some Senate um, Democrats. But we just haven't been able to uh, get this over the finish line. And and that is he's not going to stop being a barrier and many won't go up against him. So. Here we are without, and, and you're saying, well, what we, what does this all mean? Well, basically, that this ban that has been in place, established in 1999, oh yeah, 1999, it wasn't even like 2000, says, listen here, HHS, it's part of your annual appropriation. We call it in here in our DC bubble, we call it the Labor H Bill. It's the appropriations for um, Department of Labor and, and Health and Human Services. And it's a big nut, right? Like just like defense and education, you know, we've all these other ones that get funded, agriculture, so on and so forth. Well, for the appropriations for healthcare stuff in the federal government, they said, listen, you HHS will never, ever touch this topic so long as, you know, this ban is in place. So we, you can't spend even a penny, not one red cent on establishing a standard for a patient identifier. So that's why, and it remains and it gets renewed every year just like clockwork. And, um, and while, you know, you can win a few battles until you win the war, you're, and we're not close to winning the war. My going to say that we are because we, we've made, we've won a lot of battles, right? Like I said, on the house side, but you have to win that war. And that barrier, um, Senator Paul still remains a big barrier. So that is why we do not have a, um, a the ability for HHS to set standards. And you, you know, if you're in the health edge space, Standards are everything. It's interoperability, right? You, if like say date of birth is coded with like the year is four, four digits versus two, then oh, we got an interoperability issue and garbage in, garbage out. So that is why we have all these um, organizations who have to take it upon themselves to figure out their own strategy 
like, uh, you know, algorithms and um, referential matching and all those other things. And there aren't even standards around those. And so that's why we are where we are. Does that, does that kind of, does that answer your question? It, it, it does. It does. And I find that fascinating given the fact he's a physician. I mean, if anybody well, right. would right. know that the That's fact exactly. that's, yeah, how important that is to get, get it right and get it right the first time. That is amazing to me. Uh, I, I, I can't quite, I can't quite understand it. Well, uh, some, I mean, prepare to be this Washington, but that's the reality. And so, you know, at this point, I think that I, I have just had to have a take us take a hard look here, and you know you, you I'm all about if you can't go through the mountain, you go around the mountain kind of thing. You go over the mountain. We we have to figure out a different way, right? I mean, it's not we're, like we're going to lay down our sword and stop fighting the battle to remove this provision. It, it's again, I don't know if your listeners care care about the provisions, provision five ten and the labor H bill, whatever. It's just this provision that prohibits HHS from spending any money. So if we can't win the war, then we have to look at other ways to help solve the, the patient safety issue. You know, whether or not we have this uh, physician in Congress who believes that this isn't the right way to do it. So that is something we're taking a hard look at. And um, but I don't think that there's one solution per se. Yeah. I mean, you could bring again, for example, like, and let me just reference, maybe, I don't know if you'd share links at the end of your program, but we are part of a coalition. Okay. And just all your listeners out there, there's no fee to join the coalition. If you're, it's organization though, it's not person. So patientidnow.org, you can go look it up, patientidnow.org. We lead this organization with some other organizations like Akima and some others. And we try to change Congress's mind to flip this over. Um, but there's a lot of discussion around like the cost. You asked about costs and challenges. And while, while we continue to go down the road of trying to remove this, um, Cassie and I, my, my colleague, who really, again, spearheads many of our efforts on patient ID on the Hill, are looking at some other options. And, and the Patient ID Now Coalition, for example, has put forward a framework, like things that you should think about that don't necessarily involve a patient identifier. You know, putting privacy first is a thought. You know, there's many things in here. We talk about the cost, the administrative burden, the safety impact, the, the disparities on those who don't speak English. Um, there's so many problems with this. But but we we can't sit around here and hand ring. I, I don't have time for hand ringing. And I've now I think we've hit a wall where we're like, okay, we got to look at some other options. So other options might be, for example, there's some um, there's a provision that was part of the Chips Act, and I, and I'm no um, you know Intel processing chip you know expert over here or any vendor that makes chips. But there was a big piece of legislation that just passed. Uh, earlier this summer that puts money into helping put America first as opposed to China on chips, computer chips, you might say, well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, inside of that bill is a provision related to digital identity. And I, we've been watching that, okay? Digital identity, okay, you know, the way to be identified in the ether, we're online all day long. You know, banking has figured it out. You know, big, big um, platforms that sell to us every day that we buy from every day have figured this out. And so how do you identify somebody in the ether so that you know that it's you, Dr. Honors, the right J.R. Honors, that it's not, you know, maybe your, your colleague down the street who happens to have the same name and birthday as you. So there's a, there's a digital identity provision in there that we're following. And um, NIST developed standards 
I've just learned recently, and I got to dive into this, that California mandated a national identifier. It's on my to-do list. Going to look that up. So we're looking at different ways and then maybe bringing some standardization to maybe the algorithms. And finally, and again, this isn't even finally, I'm sure there's other ideas, but we're collecting them. So send me all your great ideas is um, more transparency for vendors. The certified vendors don't actually, force, they're not forthcoming with what their match rate is. So if you go and ask your vendor, like, hey, vendor so-and-so, could you tell me what the match rate is for, you know, for patients? They'll, you know, they'll kind of hem and haw, and they don't want to give that information out. We'd like to see a bright light shine onto that so we know a little bit more about truly what the mismatch rate is. It's hard to, you know, solve a problem when you don't have all the information right in front of you. So those are a few things, and I'm sure I'm missing stuff, so maybe Cassie will help me. <laughs> If there's anything big that I've missed, she can pipe in here. But does it make sense? Like it, we we can't go through the mountains, so we have to figure this out. No, absolutely, and and I'm all for that, and that's why I was curious when I was reviewing these proposals. You know how many different ways, and you're right. There's not one really great way, but as long as people are obstinate, uh, we have to find a way to get around the obstinance. It's 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 a simple fact. Um, I personally believe shining a light on what you just talked about with match rates, uh, shine a light on the medical errors that are caused by mismatch and how that works and what those are, um, because there are some things you can put in the medical record that could harm a patient very, very badly. And we've got to make sure that, you know, it is what it is before we start to act upon it as a clinician. So I forgot to tell you, I, I can't believe I forgot this, but um, we had a, we had patient ID week last year and you said, you mentioned patient harm. You know, it's really hard to find patients who are willing to go on record and say, I was harmed. I'm raising my hand. I was harmed by um, being mismatched with someone else. Either they don't know what about our effort or they're maybe they're under some sort of like agreement where they can't talk about what happened, but that, that, that is a really big issue. Right. So we are looking for people who are willing to tell their story so that because let me tell you something about Congress. <clears throat> they don't that here's another thing. How many legislators do you think are aware of this issue? Right. I mean, if you explain it to them though, right, right, not that many. If you and and you know, um Representative Foster has been a big champion of ours. Um and he he's been doing some great work and Representative Kelly. But here's the thing. Patients may not know that there's a whole effort in like all this sausage making stuff that goes into this. So we have a patient ID um, awareness week and patient ID day. And so if you, you know, want to help get the word out about, or you know of a patient who's been harmed, please give them our email so we can talk to them in confidence. We don't like to give up people's information, but um, it's so hard, right? To find these and you, that's how you win the hearts and minds of lawmakers. You tell them a story that they can relate to. Right. That's what we need. Well, I'll certainly be on the lookout and help with that because I, I think I do know a few. So we're kind of cutting down to the, the end of our, our time here. Um, I asked this question of every guest. If you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing in healthcare IT, what would it be? I think I know what your answer is, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, golly. Oh. Uh... Uh, um, that's a good one. Um, 
Well, I think it goes back to what I said I'm passionate about is, you know, you want the efficiency, right? You, you don't, I mean, I remember if you could, again go back and think of those harrowing days where meaningful use, when it was still called meaningful use, said, oh, print the summary for the patient and give it to them. And all, all the doctors gave them the, the patient the summary and they summarily throw it in the trash, <clears throat> creating a seemingly HIPAA violation. But that was, you know, again, we don't need a million, a million pieces of paper in the garbage. We don't need CCVAs that are voluminous and no one could read them or discern them and doctor's eyes glaze over and then they just start deleting everything in their inbox. No, we don't need that. We need efficient, right? And so it has to be like efficient. It has to be meaningful. It needs to meet the patient where they are. It needs to meet the provider, the clinician where they are. So it has to be efficient, effective. I mean, yes, interoperability, so interoperability is obviously core to this, but it's just having smart technology. I, I used to say like doctors aren't opposed to technology. They just want good stuff that works, right? Absolutely. And they, right. They, they don't really care how you got there. They just want to be able to, like, get their record. They don't want, like, <clears throat> the millions of reasons why you can't do it. Just give them what they need. So it has to be more efficient and meaningful. That's what I would say. That's a great answer. And that's pretty much what um, I'm about these days in what I do every day. If people want to get more information, now, you did mention your website, the website about the patient ID. Um, so if they want to get in contact with you or your organization and see what you're about and see how they can help, uh, how would they do that? Yep. The teams, it's a phantom email box. Don't get deterred by a phantom email. Cause let me tell you, there's only a few of us who are small but mighty policy at shinecentral.org. Let's open the door to our conversation. You don't have to be a time member to have a conversation with us. We talk to many people all day long, just like you. And we will talk to you about your your plights, your woes. We'll break down the tough stuff. We'll, you know, and it's, you know what? It's okay to agree to disagree. It's okay, Absolutely. right? We don't yes. all have to have the same opinion. And I like to hear everybody's opinion. So that's the best way to reach us is policyatshawncentral.org. Well, Mari, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation, a lot of really great points, and I hope it's been informative to our, our listeners. Again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.